The Brown Sign Project podcast is proudly supported by Stephen Spencer and Associates. There's reopening, then there's building back better, then there's creating a sustainable future business model. From managing change to customer experience design and brand communication, our innovation toolkit helps visitor attractions and destinations build forward better. Welcome to the Brown Sign Project, bringing together tourism professionals from around the world to share what they love about the attractions industry and to inspire the next generation of industry leaders. So what are we waiting for? Let's get on with today's episode. The Brown Sign Project Podcast. Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Brown Sign Project. Uh, We're here on episode three with Karen and Lois. Um, They're going to introduce themselves in a second, but you'll all be delighted to hear that most of our discussion today revolves around one of my favourite topics, which is the tensor barrier. Um, And I'm sure Lois has got lots of sound tensor barriers too. If you've met Lois before, you'll know that she has. Um, And Karen, who is joining us, um, I'll let her explain what her role is and why it's so important that she's here. Uh, Lois, hello. Hello, hi, how are you doing? I'm very good. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you're involved in this conversation? Sure. So um, I am uh, the head of visitor operations at the VNA. Uh, so pre-pandemic, we, we would usually welcome around 4 million visitors annually. So um, lots of visitors uh, to kind of move around a very big, very complex historical building. Um, uh, mostly when we have popular exhibitions or popular Friday lates, that's when, you know, really the, the kind of, um, the beauty of the queuing system comes into play. Um, but obviously most recently, uh, with our kind of post post pandemic, um, or new, new normal as it were, um, we've been doing lots of experiments with, with queuing and tense barriers and, um, and I do love a beautiful queue. Anything that just helps to signal where our visitors need to go, what they need to do, um, where we want to move them, anything to give them a good, solid welcome uh, that leaves them hopefully less confused than when they get lost somewhere in our gorgeous building. Excellent. I will tell you, I've been lost in the VNA many times. So. <laughs> I always recommend it. I actually, you know, I love a queue to begin with, but but after that, get lost and enjoy. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I was say, there is a particular <laughs> corridor in the VNA where I have been stuck many, many times <laughs> when I did a project there before. And uh, yeah, I always get in it and I'm always like, damn, I'm here again. And now I got to go up a different <laughs> floor. So yeah, I, I appreciate any sort of wayfinding in the VNA, definitely. <laughs> um, and now we have Karen. So Karen, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, so afternoon, everybody. I'm so glad to be part of this. this. Is this is my first ever podcast, and what better topic than a tensor barrier to to discuss during that? Um, so I've been at Tensator just over three years now, and I am so fortunate that when I joined, I was given the leisure and tourism sector to look after. Um, very much more my field over, say, rail or or airports. Although I, I look after rail now as well, but the the exciting part of me being part of that is. I get to visit some of the most wonderful attractions in the UK, including the VNA, which, as um, as we mentioned, is one of our great customers. And we've got some beautiful kit in there, and including you know wall systems and and some of our standard posts and, and what have you. And uh, it, it's just really wonderful for me to go around the UK and be really proud that our product is really helping with that visitor experience from arrival from the flow on site and uh, personalising the queue with 
some beautiful branded webbing to to get your visitors super excited about what's going to be happening and and what they're going into um and it, and it really helps not only with that welcome and that front of house experience but their wayfinding going around and um you know it has the world has changed somewhat with with covid and there's been some really beautiful pluses that have came out of it in that with this one-way systems and social distancing it's allowed a lot of attractions to get the visitors to see the whole of the attraction as opposed to darting in and out and missing rooms um so i think there's there's been lots of pluses that that have come out of it that the barriers have certainly helped with so really pleased to to, to be here today excellent thank you um yeah i think there's a there's I mean, one of my one of my first questions is is exactly that. So I'm I'm going to pose this question to Lois first because I think as an overview, but I think Karen definitely you will have some say on it. It's, do you feel like the perception of queuing has changed because of COVID? So now, especially when people are booking a lot online, do you feel like queuing is, I mean, whether for positive or negative, is different now? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that there has been a, a kind of behavioral shift in how people perceive queuing um I think we have a really we've we've kind of had an interesting challenge at the VNA because um you know on a on a sort of normal weekday you don't need to queue to get into the the VNA we've got three entrances and exits and it's it's very much free flow you come in you have that that warm welcome from from our team we've got some brilliant signage and and maps to, to kind of help you help guide you around your visit or as I mentioned earlier to kind of get lost in the building whereas now I think that you know especially when we first opened people wanted to feel a level of Covid security and it's a you know queuing is a really visual way to show that um, you know that actually there are measures in place and whether you had that queue or not obviously we had measures in place but it's something that's very visual we also used them. Um, again, we have we have historic floors in in uh, in the VNA, which are classed in in and of themselves as an object, and they're conserved as as many of our objects are. And and so we didn't really have the luxury of being able to stick stick signs on the floor either. So um, we used our, our barrier systems as a way to say, you know, this these barriers are placed two meters apart to to help you uh, to social distance and. Um, you know that that really helped us so as a, as a visual in terms of um COVID security absolutely I think that's something that you know people's behaviors have changed around um but I do think that's now shifting um I think that there you know there's now an expectation that things are opening up and we want to be able to to move to a more free-flowing world um just a, a sort of personal anecdote when I went you know when we sort of first went into the lockdown I had to queue to get into the big Tesco near me and it was, I actually found it quite frightening in a way it was good because I knew that it was going to be capacity managed inside but then on the other hand you know I've never had to this is you know never had to queue all the way down a, a car park to go into Tesco it's, it's not really how I want to spend my Saturday but there also wasn't anything else to do so as a queue lover I kind of enjoyed it but um you know but now I think if we were still seeing that that would that would feel quite frightening to me also so I think it's yeah. really it's a fine balance at the moment yeah well everybody knows I, I love a, a capacity managed attraction so I'm I'm all for Tesco's being capacity managed for the for the rest of eternity frankly but I know that I'm in the, the minority on that one definitely um and that actually you you did sort of make me think of, of something there but I'll come back to it so um 
Karen, if, if you just want to give us your thoughts on what you've seen, obviously, from your point of view, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a bit in the same way that Lois mentioned about the, you know, an historic site where you don't have the luxury of being able to pop stickers down left, right and centre, and nor do you want to because you don't want that scaremonger and you still want that same feel when you go in there, these beautiful floors and not feel like you're hemmed in with signage and getting bossed about. So um, we've very much have, have led with our, our customers and we've developed um, various products. So whereby we've always done branded signage and in, in our webbing belts, you know, to advertise theatre productions or attractions um, and, and that being part of, you know, the, the first experience. So, you know, a, a theatre production and people go and post next to the barriers and get their photograph taken to say that they're going to, you know, this latest attraction that's in the West End. We very much developed that and used that as, as part of our wayfinding and our COVID strategy in the hands based space. We put that in our webbing so that, you know, you had that messaging, but it was a very subtle messaging in the queue line without these big signs everywhere. But again, making sure that, uh, our, um, you know, the, the guests were aware that they were spaced at that two metre space. And so it was a subtle way of doing it without having these big alarming signs in places. Um, and, things like QR codes for your registering, uh, but, you know, we're coming away from that, but registering, being on site and um, for those, getting those pings um, for notification and signing in. So that very much helped having that signage aspect as part of the queue line. And, and it meant that the attractions could get some of that red tape and some of those, you know, wonderful measures that were put in place that made people feel safe, but that could be done in the queue line. So it wasn't all done at the, at the entrance point. Um, and, you know, with capacity planning and wonderful thing that's come out of it is it's enabled people to have timed attractions and really know who's coming and, and to scale up and down from a staffing perspective. But having some of those measures put in place within the queue means that the staff are still available to do those lovely welcomes instead of having to make sure that they're signed in, for example. Um, so I, I think from us, we just developed our range to make sure that, well, what can they do in, in the queue line to help with that? so that people can just do it as a part of the natural flow so they're then they're notified about the hand space space and the two meter spacing they can sign in their qr code we developed a hand sanitizer that fits on top of the 10 sater post so you don't have to have a secondary post so that's all part of the flow going in um but making sure that that feels very natural and, and not creating that bottleneck even if it is a timed attraction just so that things can go in in as a normalized way as, as possible so um, I think, yeah, it's, de it's definitely changed. And I think yeah. fortunate enough that we've been able to develop our range to, to support with that. Yeah, I think also lucky that we, we live in a country that generally loves a queue. Um, so, you know, any of those people who maybe weren't quite familiar with queuing before, um, who were maybe, you know, a little bit difficult to deal with when you were trying to queue people into an attraction, actually, they're now used to queuing at supermarkets. <laughs> Queuing, queuing to come to your desk to buy a ticket or queuing to get their ticket scanned or like say sign in with a QR code suddenly doesn't seem such a big ask when you're actually you know competing against your Morrisons or your Tesco's or whoever it might be um but you did bring up a really a, a great point Lois which I wanted to try and, and Karen picked up on as well is that it didn't it never even occurred to me that you wouldn't be able to put stickers down because that was you know stickers were everywhere I mean we had some this is kind of off topic but my husband works for a really big brand of pubs. Um, so when they first closed, we had all the stickers that he was testing to 
for the floor stickers for social distancing when they could reopen. So we had them in our house for a little while because we were like testing them and doing because you know we're sad people, it's what we do. Um and yeah, and it just never even occurred to me that like you wouldn't be able to put those on the floor of the VA. Yeah, God, I didn't even think about it. You know, you've, I've seen some places where they've kind of gone just over the top with the amount of that, you know, that hazard tape and the stickers on the floor, where again it becomes it moves from being reassuring into um yeah I think I used the word earlier frightening and that's not what we want to do we want to keep you know we need to be able to especially within the museum and cultural sector is to to keep all of that reassurance and I think the word now is is definitely it's reassurance in keeping with our buildings and our experiences because we don't want to take away from that and and in a way we are very much an escape from from all of these you know, from whether it's just being in our house 24 seven or um, not being able to go out, not being able to, to meet up with friends. So, you know, all of a sudden those in-person experiences became really important. And the last thing that you wanna be kind of bombarded with is stand here, go here, you know, in a way that feels very unnatural. And, you know, whilst we are sort of in a way telling people go here, stand here, but making it, making sure that people feel welcome and not like, it's a burden because it was our pleasure to, you know, for so many attractions, it was our pleasure to welcome people back and have our buildings brought to life again. So as we wanted to make it as easy and as welcoming as we possibly could. Yeah, I think as well, it's an interesting point because I think tourist attractions in general, regardless of what is beyond your door, whether you're a museum or a theme park or, you know, a, a live a, a animal attraction, whatever it might be, is that there's always been an element of risk you know, there's always an element of risk. You're in a public building. You know, I, I, my first job was working at Madame Tussauds and it was very much in, you know, a post 9-11 mentality of, you know, any bag that was on the floor was, it was really scary, but we've always managed that risk. And I think it, it came as second nature to, to most operations people to, to continue that anyway, was to think actually, this is just a heightened version of what we've always done. And so like you said, just reassuring people as opposed to, doesn't need to look like the zombie apocalypse, <laughs> you know, don't, don't need kind of red and uh, white barrier tape or orange and black barrier tape, you know, it's not the walking dead, we'll be fine. Um, but yeah, I do, I do think it's it's sort of just an extension of what we naturally did anyway. Um, and Karen, you touched on um, kind of staff and how staff help in that situation. Um, and obviously that's been a, a huge thing for, um, especially those attractions that maybe haven't always had queues at their front door, like the VNA. But do you think that there is somewhere that we've lost maybe that staff interaction in a queue line? How vital do you think staff kind of, you know, we're talking at the moment about customer um, journey and customer flow. At what point do you think there needs to be a human involved? Because I know obviously you deal a lot with steel and structure and, you know, technology, what about what about those people? Where do you think they belong in that situation? Very much so. So, um, I mean, I've, I went down to some of the big free ad- attractions in London recently just to get a feel for the market and see how things have changed and what's happening differently. And, you know, there's always gone, I think you mentioned it yourself, you've always had those checks in place. So if we think about a theatre environment, what needs to happen at a theatre environment, you've got to check the tickets, you've got to make sure there's any age restrictions that are allowed for, um, you've got your security bag checks, um, you know, whether it's a time track or not. But if you think about a theatre environment, they have a time that they must start because they've got a deadline that they have to finish. So 
all of those things are still in place um, and all of those will have a human interaction. And, and it's super important because, you know, uh, somebody, a robot can't check an age restriction, for example, or, or a bag, a security bag element. And, and all of that, if you've then got the added pressure of checking a QR code, doing a, a temperature check and on all of those restrictions that we've had in place that thankfully are now obviously we're moving away from, but all of those do have to have that that human touch to it and when you're going through those and you know that they're standard things that you go through isn't it wonderful when you've got somebody that's got a smile on their face that's telling you a bit about you know who's backstage or who's in the theatre that night and and giving you a bit more about uh, you know a, a museum side of things you know interacting with um a young child that's there about the latest dinosaur that's on show or whatever it may be so I think you will never lose that. And, and if anything, that's more important than ever when you are doing those extra measures. Um, so I think that the human touch is, is massively important. And I went to Peterborough Cathedral, um, took a couple of, uh, a Monday off a couple of weeks ago, and I was greeted upon arrival and they're still doing a bit of a one-way system in there because they're just keeping those extra measures in place. But I had a, a guy there that was um, volunteering and he, he told me about, you know, a painting that was on the wall behind me that I would never have turned around and looked at. I would have followed this one-way system around. So I think that knowledge is, is what makes your day. And I've, I've remembered him and I remember the story. And, um, you know, I, I don't think you can ever put a value on that. I think that's always needs to be in place because it just adds so much to the experience all around, I feel. Yeah, I think one of the questions I get asked um, with my consulting head on is, is people always say, oh, you know, I want to... I want to put this piece of technology in place because I want to reduce my, my human element. And that works to an extent, but actually you're better off just refocusing your human element. Like you said, that actually, I don't need a barrier. I can, I can buy a steel barrier, that's fine. But a steel barrier cannot tell people where they can go or what they can do and, and you know all that sort of warm greeting stuff. But yeah, just reducing that human element. And Lois, do you think that that's changed for you, especially kind of covid um it's not behind us but you know what I mean the new normal um in that that element has changed in terms of what your people are doing yeah definitely so um in in our kind of post pandemic uh structure we we've we've put in a, a very specific sales and welcome team and you know there is a real emphasis on that welcome we now because we are operating um with one entrance and one exit at the moment and we're, we we continue to review these operations all the time um it's allowed us to to literally say hello to every single person that, that walks in the building and to have that that interaction and to be there to answer questions and you know exactly again as karen said now is more important than ever to to again have people there that are that are welcoming, that are giving you information, that are also well informed about what's happening, what the COVID secure measures are, what the current restrictions are, um, where you need to go to see an, a certain object, if there are tickets available for certain exhibitions. It makes a real difference. I think as well, interestingly, that, that whilst we've had, and kind of going back to, to what I was saying earlier, you know, people, um, are reassured by this kind of visual COVID uh, secure measure. Interestingly, we've also had visitors that, that don't want to queue and are kind of confused as to why they have to queue. And 
you know, it is, you need to have someone there to explain, oh, you know, we are, we're monitoring our capacities to make sure you're safe, we're safe, everyone's safe. It won't take long. You know, you're within a 15 minute slot, you'll be in within the next few minutes. It looks long, but we're, we're continuing that flow. And, you know, I think it's really important to have people there to just, again, that word kind of reassure visitors as they come in the doors. And yes, we can put signage up, but then there is so much information that we have to give visitors. It's kind of sorting through what's the most important part that we need to tell them whilst also balancing that all important hello rather than it just being just a massive billboard of you can do this but you can't do this and we're doing this and doing this so I think I think you know team members and um you know that that human interaction is just more important than ever and there are so many lovely stories that my team tell me about and how you know they've seen they've seen children grow up you know literally over the years of just seeing them come year after year and watching them get bigger and bigger and uh you know people with different neurodiversity and how they they've seen them kind of grow and blossom and have more information or more more connection with both objects and people um and we had exactly that after the pandemic after the really you know those two really big lockdowns people coming back and, and just saying how lovely it was to see people again and staff. It didn't have to be their friend or family. It, the, the V&A, like many institutions, it, it's, it's some, to some people, it's their second home and they feel, you know, they feel comfortable there and they feel at home there. And I think that's really important. Yeah. I, you just made me think, actually, I a huge advocate of, of park run and we'll talk about it. So, you know, till you're all, absolutely sick to death of me talking about it uh, but it, you know it's a real community and we went recently went back to our home park run um after obviously the lockdowns etc it's only just start, restarted and I was watching this little boy well not a little boy <laughs> watching this young man run and I thought I reckon like this there's something about him that I just recognized and I realized actually when I last saw him he was a little boy um and the re- it, he has some um, physical disabilities in his legs and he has a running coach with him and, and Parker is one of the things that he does as part of his physio. But exactly that of going, I, I can't believe two years has passed. And I think, yeah, when you work in an attraction where you see the people come and go, it's actually, yeah, that, that two years is a, is a big old time for some people, a real big change. But you did, you did kind of hit upon something there, which um, is my, my next question, I guess, which is... Um, the one about kind of wayfinding and what role that has to play, you know, and sort of death by signage. Nobody wants death by signage. But um, what do you think in terms of that visitor journey experience so that, you know, end to end, I come in, I have an experience with you and then I leave. What do you think kind of role wayfinding has to play in that? So in terms of, you know, like say it might be a one-way system, it might be pointing different directions. Do you, do you think that has as much of an impact as, you know, we we might think it does? Absolutely. I mean, I think the best sort of scenario to kind of think about this, if we think about a theme park, so when you arrive at the theme park, you've got your car parking, and then there's lots of different ways that people can transact. You could be a family that's coming down the motorway and dad's spotted Alton Towers and you want to just pull off, and obviously that scenario, you need to buy a ticket. And, you know, let's let's be honest here, no attraction wants to turn anybody down just because they haven't pre-purchased a ticket. All sales are welcomed. 
Um, so, you know, the, the theme park environment has to allow for those ad hoc visitors that are going to turn up in the same way that any museum or any other attraction would. So we've got your visitor that's turning up on the day. Where do they go? How do they buy their ticket? Where do they need to park? Is it a yellow car park, a green car park? So we can start with signage just in where do you need to park to get the, the ticket or to go into the attraction? So it really starts from the car park um, in terms of advising where the, what the next step is. So if they've got to pre-purchase their, if they've already pre-purchased their tickets, there'll be a certain queue line. If they need to buy their ticket, they, there might be a fast track machine. Uh, whereby you might just need to redeem them on the day. Um, or there may be that um, attraction that does need that human touch where you can't just go to a machine and buy a ticket because you might have a voucher off of the back of your, your cornflakes or whatever it is that you're going there because, you know, there's lots yeah. of these two-for-one offers. Naming naming no names there, but there's always a two-for-one offer on a pack of Kellogg's. <laughs> there certainly is. And, and, and also, how wonderful, because it enables families to actually be able to afford to go to these wonderful attractions. So... I think at the at the car park side is where it really starts is what is your queue? Where is your queue? And the last thing you want to do is be in your prepaid ticket queue and you get there and you do not have your ticket. So that's going to be embarrassing, frustration, stress levels. Nobody wants to do that. So we've we've worked with, you know, some of the, the biggest attractions in the UK and we've done it really simply. So we've got our standard queue post, but we've denoted it with colours. So it might be um, if you imagine a cafe banner style that will create pods and your pod is your pre-book ticket. You might have a, a pod for your group bookings for your schools and um, those coach, you know, those day travellers. Um, and then you've got those that have, have had to just obviously buy the ticket on the day. So I think from, from just from the entrance, just making sure that's really clear with your signage. And we've done things that we've done for years. Historically, our, a lot of our bread and butter business has very much been in the aviation industry. And that's very much where we, we started off. And if you can imagine, you know, somebody, the amount of people that will come off of a plane in a short space of time and need to get through immigration, some of that beautiful wayfinding, that colour coding, that high signage, we are now very much bringing into the leisure industry um, to make sure that that experience is as, as painless as possible. So creating some telescopic signs that are higher, making sure we've got clear coloured areas where you would go into your attraction. Um, and then once you're in your attraction, how wonderful we have fast track. I mean, fast track wasn't about when I was a kid, but I wish it was. Um, and you know, people are happy to pay a little bit of a premium to get on some of the biggest roller coaster quicker. So then our, our wayfinding and our queuing can be that fast track queue or that single rider queue to make sure that attractions are at their maximum capacity every time that ride's going out. Somebody there might be, you know, a mum or a dad that just wants to whiz on in and have a quick go on her roller coaster and all the kids are waiting and they're happy to be that single rider. So single rider queuing, fast track queuing. So I don't think it ever it, it's ever just a one you know size fits all in terms of the offering it's a queue but in terms of what the product is how we use it how it's implemented um you know in in sort of a theme park environment you've got different floors you've got block paving then you go into a ride environment where you can't necessarily screw into the floor so we might put a magnetic floor plate in so there's lots of options and lots of different choices depending on the environment and, and what's needed for there. Um, and so for us, it's really exciting about going through that journey, meeting with our, our clients and following and doing exactly what 
you know, the customer will do on the day or the visitor will do on the day and walking through. And then let's look at those pinch points. Let's see where it can be a bit of a bottleneck. Let's make it better. Let's streamline it. Um, and, and something that we haven't sort of pushed on as yet, let's earn some revenue from some of these queue lines. You know, we've had a long time where a lot of our attractions have been closed and they've lost a, a lot of money. And, you know, a, a, there's a lot of charities out there and how can we make sure that we're getting, you know, making sure we're getting our charity donations as, as best as possible. And that can be done as some beautiful banners and with QR codes where you can tap to pay and, and incorporate that as part of that um, journey. And then once they've came through the attraction, typically we'd have a, a gift shop of some description. Everybody likes to get their keyring or their mug and their T-shirt and whatever it is they're going to take away from that day um, and incorporating in queue merchandising. You know, your basket spend can go up 30% and you've paid for the system within three months in that extra revenue. So it's not just about, it is about experience and it is about that flow and it is about making sure that we're doing the best we can. But also it's about generating some revenue from that um, and the sponsorship deals as well. So that's a whole nother element to it. But again, that's very much part of our consultancy when we, we do that. We make sure that we're covering all areas in the same way that you try and have that um, guidebook sold at the front of the, you know, the front of the, the journey. So I think very much it's it's a big thought process and there's lots of products that fit into that. Yeah. Yeah. We have a whole episode dedicated at the end of this series to uh, gift shops. So <laughs> you'd be interested to hear what they say about that. Cause I mean, you know, the, the, one of the first things we said when we did visitor experience kind of mapping and, and customer journey mapping was where do we start to break this down and we you know easy one to check off exit through the gift shop it's <laughs> so easy um so Lois what do you think in terms of obviously you we discussed earlier about your wayfinding has changed and, and all that kind of stuff but what what's your thoughts on kind of how that affects your visitors and what they're doing in their satisfaction yeah absolutely so we have a, a you know, a big complex museum with multiple levels built across um, several decades. And uh, a few years ago, we implemented a huge new wayfinding system. And we very much thought about it in, in kind of the way, if you think about sort of motorways and A roads, and, you know, if you are trying to get somewhere to a very specific place um, up north, you, you don't have that signage immediately from uh, from London. You just have signs that say, you know, the north and you, you follow you follow that road and then it gets more and more specific the, the closer you get. Um, so again, I, I grew up in Devon and I live in London. Everything above that is the north. So. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, as someone that <laughs> as somebody that grew up in the north, I take I take offence to the fact that no, I don't at all. But it's true. I mean, you do. You drive up the motorway, and you know it says the north this way. Where that starts yes. is another matter. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll let you. I'll let you have at least the Watford Gap services before you before it becomes <laughs> to the me north. It's Somerset, Somerset. <laughs> You're like London. That's in the north to me. Yes. <laughs> Um, but that that was kind of the idea that we adopted with our wayfinding system is is once you come into the building where, where are you generally trying to get to and then how does that break down into the smaller elements as you get further and further into the galleries so you know what are the the specific time periods or the specific materials that you're after once you get to those kind of those bigger galleries so it's kind of getting from people you know, getting people from A to D, but first you need to get them from A to B to then follow that journey on. And, and of course, people play a really big part in that as well, as well as the signage, as well as 
you know, where we make make people go. Um, and then in terms of the, the wayfinding for our, our post-COVID um, reality, you know, again, we we're operating on a, a um, entrance, one entrance, one exit, whereas before we're very used to having um, our big grand uh, uh, Cromwell Road entrance is our main entrance and we've we've switched that because we have our exhibition road uh, Sackler Courtyard that that has allowed us to do much more with queuing and bring people in and it's a bit safer it's you feel kind of there's a psychology to once you're through the gates you're not technically in the building but you're on the premises so that feels very different to kind of queuing along the road and, and we've really seen that behavior as well and we made a made a decision quite early on that um you know we we undenied about the two entrances and that we would do it from the exhibition road entrance but but obviously our signage is more geared towards you know there is more of it in our in our main Cromwell road entrance because you immediately see galleries you can immediately go up floors you've got two staircases that go down on either side you've got two staircases that go up you've got galleries on either side you've got shops straight in front of you whereas exhibition road is very much um left is kind of cafe toilets and actually the, the the exit to one of our major exhibitions and then um on the right is the rest of the museum the gallery so you have to start a lot smaller um and there isn't necessarily the space for all of that and we toyed with the idea of doing one-way systems i know a lot of um attractions did that and with with great success as well and I know that colleagues and peers of mine have talked about, I think the National Gallery and Tate have, have talked about um, keeping some of those trails in place because visitors really um, find them really useful. It's kind of a one-stop shop for, I've never been here before, what should I do? Oh, I, you know, I can follow a trail and I can see how that that um, be really useful and really helpful. We made a decision quite early on not to do that because we, again, we didn't want to be prescriptive about where people went in the building you know again we've had however long um kind of locked in our houses and without anything to do and we wanted to give people the freedom to come and explore and enjoy enjoy for themselves and um, and so that's really that's really worked for us and i think people have been felt very pleased to be able to do that um but you know to begin with we did need to put in some additional kind of um big big bits of signage to be you know galleries this way um, type thing and and just really trying to signpost and move people into the building and, and we still we're still continuing to review and adapt our, our operations um, every week and the team are you know really brilliant at giving us feedback on what works what visitors are saying what are they asking for where do they want to go um, you know what's what's working so whilst a queue um may look really beautiful from above and uh, we were talking earlier about some, there's some gorgeous images of, of the queues that we first put in place we've had to change those and we've had to adapt them as as we you know uh, get more more people walking up so to begin with um everybody needed to to pre-book a ticket we're now you know we're now um experimenting more and more with having people um you know, walking up, they don't need a ticket and how, how we accommodate them alongside um, our members and, and our pre-booked tickets. And, and that model is changing. So we need to adapt to that. Yeah, I think that interesting you say about like having like a one-way system. I love the idea of having a one-way system around the V&A because you would be there for years. <laughs> like you must look at every item 
before you're allowed to move on to the next item. You would literally be there for the rest of eternity. Just going, please let me out. We, we have something like, it's, yeah, it's something like 7.7 miles of gallery. So you definitely get your steps up. Yeah, yeah, you don't sort of want to be forcing people around that in a one-way system. Uh, but it would stop me getting caught in one corridor for the rest of my life. So that's yeah. pretty much better. I think um, when I first joined at Tensatus just over three years ago, my, one of my first um, meetings was at the BA and it was just to review some wall units she had on site. And I sort of planned, oh, I'll nip in for half an hour, go around, check a few of the ends and make sure everything's working okay and give you guys some feedback. And it ended up being about half a day because I had no idea where I was going, what I was looking for. And of course, I didn't even have a map showing me where the, the items were. So that explains, I didn't know it was seven and a half miles, but that definitely explains half of my day and where it went. Yeah, you probably did a marathon that day, just running backwards and forwards. Excellent. Um, and you touched on something there, Lois, which um, I'm quite interested in. There was a, a conversation I first had when I first got into uh, ticketing software about um, fairness in queuing. So why some people didn't want to have kind of a fast track entry. One, you know, one of the big things when we talk about getting people to book online, which again, in hindsight now, it seems like madness because when it, when it was suddenly needed, everybody did it. But before I used to have arguments with people saying, we don't really want people to book in advance. I think this is insane. Why don't you want people to do that? Um, but they'd say, you know, if they book in advance, we've only got one queue. And so like, you know, you book in advance and then you stand in the same queue as people who didn't. I mean, and that to me as well is madness. Like, you know, Karen said, you should be able to think, well, I've got my ticket. So I'm maybe not, you know, super fast tracked and always get straight in, but I shouldn't have to stand behind somebody who hasn't even made the decision to purchase yet. That just seems a bit weird. Um, so one of the things that, that you touched on there was around kind of getting the, the fairness right about, you know, why am I queuing or whatever? So how I mean you need you don't have obviously many kind of VIP things but thinking about like your lates etc and accessibility what are your thoughts on kind of who gets served first and why and you know managing that as a, as a head of operations must be quite interesting this is such such a hot topic because it is it's so interesting um ticketing a free national museum because there, there's so many parameters that, that you know, we, we had to discuss around that and accessibility was a huge one. And I think it, it's something we could never have, obviously we, we, we can imagine it, but you know, I don't think ever really would have, would have been a reality because this is the nation's collection. It belongs to everyone. And you want, to, you want people to walk up, you want them to come, you want them to decide on the day, I'm, you know, I'm gonna go to the V&A today, the V&A is for me. And, I belong there and I want to um, enjoy my time there, you know, and you can come for free and spend the whole day there. And that's amazing and expand your knowledge and, you know, learn about, you know, 5,000 years of human creativity and ingenuity. That's so special. And then you're sort of thrown into this, this dilemma of, oh, but we need, now we need, need to um, ensure the safety and the comfort of our visitors and our staff and we need to limit our capacity and we need to make sure that people are giving us their details because we need to be able to track them if they then become unwell and then we need to tell other people then we need to tell the other and it just grows and grows and and so to begin with absolutely we were we were really strict with 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 our ticketing and making sure that everyone had a ticket because we had to be everyone had to be 
Um, and also we'd been thrown into this world of the use of digital and um, the, the QR code as the star player of, of 2020. Which I will always regret saying. <laughs> I, I felt like I was, I was personally overseeing the death of the QR code because I hated it so much. And everyone who, every time someone said to me, oh, it's coming up, no, 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 we don't, just, it's not needed, it's not needed. And then 2020 came <laughs> and I'll never live it down. <laughs> but I do hate them. And I will still go on record anytime and say it. They're just really badly you're used. You're not. They're not a terrible you're technology. Not they're just badly used. <laughs> that's what I'm going to say. Absolutely, I, you're not alone in that. And I mean, who could have imagined that it's it's almost like MySpace coming back in a way. Um, sort of oh, the QR, I, the QR I welcome I welcome back MySpace way before I welcome back QR codes. You you know having Thank a sound. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I mean. Um, someone I saw a thing recently that was like wouldn't it be great if on your Facebook page you could play a song that represented you and like it's like no you've just created my space that's what my space is like like uh, so yeah I I welcome back our old tech overlords any minute any minute now (laughs) talking about the um you know having VIP entrances and and you know ticketing and people coming first and what have you it's particularly challenging in some of the central locations. So if you think about, um, you know, for example, the Shard in, in central London, they obviously don't own the street where you your entrance is to go into there. So we've done a, a movable signage piece that's magnetic, a bit like a fridge magnet that just sticks on the signage. Um, but they're able to use that for... Um, visitors in terms of you know when there's a group booking or something and simply just for arrows for your VIP entrance if they've got because they obviously use the space for multiple um, events going on there so it's for them the challenge is how do they get that signage how do they make sure that somebody hasn't been stood in that queue way back and 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 having that movable signage is was really important to them Um, because you know you'd be pretty cross if you're head of whichever bank and it's your event and you're thinking you need to be in this queue and of course you don't because it's your event so I think it's um it's it's always a challenge for lots of attractions especially in those inner cities whereby you don't have the luxury of being able to have a, you know a post that you can screw to the floor and these big flags are great but we all know that we're in windy Britain where that you know they don't last five minutes and they fly over um so I think I think making denoting those areas for those special guests or that attraction um and those events is is a tricky one um and and it's just finding that right product isn't it for it to make sure that you're not removing anybody or upsetting anybody else that is waiting in that queue as well and it's really obvious why they're they've gone ahead of you for example just to keep the the stress levels down a bit in that environment yeah I think when you can explain to and and this was always my point about you know if you want to get people booking online you have to give them a reason to give you their money in advance you know that's a it's a big deal for some people less so with a a free attraction other than you have things around you know what's the value of a ticket and all all that kind of stuff but is that the easiest thing that you can say to somebody is if you book in advance you'll have a shorter queue I mean that suddenly was blown out of the water because when when 100% of people do it well then there isn't a short queue you're the only one anyway um but yeah I think in terms of like you say being able to say to somebody actually that person did book in advance and that's why they're ahead of you is a is, is a more positive message than saying I'm just you know this is unmanaged this is not really you know a thing and I used to work in an attraction that where we were trying really hard 
we had a really limited capacity and our queue would be six hours sometimes. I mean, just nobody has a good experience after six hours. But if you can say to somebody, okay, like we've reserved you in a virtual queue or however it might work so that they can go and do something else. <laughs> and then, you know, if someone turns up, it's again, that positive messaging around we're full, we're fully booked. You know, we just don't have the capacity for you. It's, it's a better message than actually, you know, you just, you've got to stand here for six hours until there's a space. It's just not, you know, it's not conducive to people having a good time. Excellent. Lois, you, 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 I can feel you desperate to say something. Go, go, go ahead. No, I, I, it's so interesting. Um, yeah. Hearing everything that you guys are saying. And obviously I, I don't have the experience of working in a kind of a more, um, uh, sort of attraction based sort of institution, such as one of the big theme parks. And that's where I can see that absolutely you want to, you want to make sure that that behavior is ingrained on an ongoing basis and that's how they act that's how those 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 um kind of attractions are built with that all in mind and i think the challenge that that kind of museums have had and certainly with us is our attraction wasn't wasn't built for you know especially not for that entry and as i said before that that free entry is is really vital to to removing any kind of access or or barriers for for anyone and everyone regardless of who you are and that's so so important and we are now in a in a position where we're trying to make sure that we balance making sure that our members who you know donate regularly to us they they're they're um supporting us through their membership making sure that they feel special whilst also balancing that kind of um that messaging of but you can also come if you don't have a ticket and and yeah, I think it's it's an interesting challenge to try to um, uh, to try and to try and yeah navigate. And the the other thing, just going back to setting behaviours, is if we do start bringing in this kind of either fast track queue or you know separate queuing, if we do it once, does that mean we need to continue with that? Does that mean that we need to do it for all of our exhibitions going forward? Does is that the behaviour that we want to encourage or we want to set with people? Because if we do change that, then is it going to be confusing for people in the future? And will it cause more, more pain points if we then want to revert it? So I think for us, certainly, we're, we're right in the middle of, of some of those discussions at the moment. And, and whilst so many, so many things across museums um, are very similar, what's really interesting is people's the different approaches each each kind of place has had to these different challenges and I don't know that there is any right right or wrong answer and I think it's it's actually incredibly unique to each the physical building as well as all of the kind of all of the different sort of like access and historic and social socioeconomic problems that are thrown into the mix what that kind of speaks to me of is you know there is so much diversity across the the way that people approach the same problem is that actually the thing that I think you know no one listening to this podcast I think will forget it because because we're all in it is that it's really easy when you look at an institution like the VNA a museum like the VNA to think well of course they know what they're doing it's the VNA well actually yeah, but it's the VNA made up of people just like you and me <laughs> who are just trying to do their best you know they, they've never been through a pandemic before either and we just have to have a little bit of grace and I think actually 
generally speaking, people have been quite gracious about it and they are letting us experiment a little bit. But how long that continues to last, I think will be interesting. Um, I think people are over it now and I think are, are getting a little tired. But I also think, you know, that that realisation that those big institutions are still just people just doing their jobs, just trying to get on and, you know, living through the same pandemic that we're living through. And I think it's a, it's a good message to to round up on. Um, so thank you both. I'm going to ask you if either of you has, because Karen promised us just before we started recording of a, an exciting <laughs> Tensator story just for Lois and I, who are obviously huge barrier nerds. Um, so Karen, I'm going to invite you to tell that story now, but also if either of you got anything to wrap up on and then, and then we'll say our goodbyes, but it's been an absolute pleasure. So Karen, over to you for your Tensator story. So um, most people know Tensator and most people will refer to the Tensor Barrier as a Tensor Barrier. And of course, it's a barrier, but the, we are the industry leaders in that in the same way that we all have a vacuum cleaner, but one's a Dyson, one's a Shark. But you refer to it as I'm going to get the Hoover out of the cupboard because, of course, that was the brand leader. So the Tensor Barrier is a barrier. There is others in the market. We like to think we're the Rolls Royce of barriers and we invented the barrier. And um, I just wanted to give you a bit of history from it because... Um, you know, also a Q nerd and really proud of where I work and our product. The, the history came, um, we were a spring business and um, the spring business was called Becklebot and they're still a trading company. And if you think about in the olden days, there was a, a window on a train that went down and then kind of sprung back up on its own. That was done with the tensile spring that allowed that movement. And then uh, the, the industry was very much in the transportation industry and supplied um, windows for ships because, of course, a ship window can't open this way or because, of course, it would just close. So a ship's window would open up and down and it needed to have some form of opening because the windows would steam up and what have you. So that spring invention was used in lots of products, um, namely the wind-up radio. Um, the wind-up torches, if you've ever done DV as a kid. Um, so we very much started as a spring business. And as part of that, the Becklerot company very much traded within transportation, moving on to in the 60s when um, passenger aircraft become more viable and people started to go into Costa del Sol and what have you in the 60s and, and airlines and, um, and passengers um, started to, to very much use the airports very much more than it for business senses because you know package holidays become more viable um and and prior to the tensor barrier invention um it was rope and post that was used but you know imagine having to put those out and, and put those away every night and what's quite interesting is we always lead our product journey not what we think the market needs but we follow our customers needs and we constantly every year i think there's probably 15 new products that have come out this year just off of the back of what our customers have required. And interestingly, that's the, the bones of our business in that Becklerwalt supplied the aviation market and somebody from which was it was the original Heathrow Airport, but it wasn't called Heathrow Airport then. It um, came up to the to, to the office and said, oh, you know, you make seatbelts because we were a seatbelt business because part of the spring went into seatbelts can you put a seatbelt on top of a post so that it just goes in and out and we don't have to have these rope and posts which are cumbersome taking them on and off every night to clean the floors so it was a case of our customer asked us for a product we invented it and and the rest they say is history but in terms of the the actual branding name 
the spring itself um, is a tensile spring and the business at the time very much wanted to go into the American market. And the, the industry um, leader in America at the time was called an Negator Spring. And they wanted a brand name that would be familiar with that, Negator. So it's a tensile, Negator, Tensator. That's where the brand name came from because we were a spring business. Amazing. And, um, and our logo on our, our labels that go on top of our posts still have Tensator with the spring logo. And that's the, um, that's the copper uh, tensile spring that does the retraction in our cassette. Amazing. You, I mean, you have to, I'm, I feel sorry for the podcast listeners because they can't see our faces. <laughs> but Lois and I are, it bonded a, a little while ago. Well, quite a long time ago now. Again, every the date's mess because you know the last two years really didn't exist um but it was a long time ago over our our general love of tensor barriers and queue lines and and so on i mean i named my company after queue lines so it's just you know it's quite a, an honor but i think both of us were very excited by the fact that we recognized the logo when you said it i'm so excited i cannot wait to tell anyone that will listen to me on Wednesday, when we open, guys, c- gather around, gather around. I'm going to tell you a story about this tensor barrier. <laughs> T- sorry, yeah. tensator barrier. <laughs> yeah. And I think you said, oh, you know, people won't remember the, the kind of horror of rope and posts. I'll tell you, there's a lot of people like me who, when you started in our attractions, have had the horror of moving rope and posts every night. <laughs> so we, we salute the tensor barrier. <laughs> On that ground alone of not having to pick up unbelievably heavy brass uh barrier things and uh, attach ropes to them and they're always red and gold no matter where you work always red and gold <laughs> but yeah it's been it's been awesome thank you ladies and just to indulge um my own love of of cue lines and and i know lois um was equally as excited when we said we were going to speak to karen so karen thank you for joining us it's been brilliant um Karen, if you want to start first with telling um, everybody who's listening where they can find you and where they can obviously find out more about tensor barriers, because we know everyone's going to be chomping at the bit to get in touch. Yeah, so um, we've got a really wonderful um, website, which has got some great case studies to give you some ideas about what you can do. Um, Personally, I would love the opportunity to get out and get away from this office at any notice. So happy to come and visit any of your wonderful attractions. We offer a free of charge consultancy and we will come and give you some great advice on capacity planning, what you can do differently. Um, You know, we never charge for for our layout plans and our ideas and our drawings. So happy to give you my time. Um, Our website is uh, tensator.com. Um, please follow us on Twitter as well. We always have some interesting facts and, and what have you going out there. Coming back to some of our, we, we're actually affiliated with Lawrence Rope and Post because we bought the company because of the history, um, which goes back to 1851, believe it or not. So we're really proud of that heritage. Um, but we do have some, some great stuff going out on Twitter. And um, lastly, I'd love to connect with anybody on, on LinkedIn. And it's uh, Karen.Richardson if you'd like to look for me. Thank you. I think I speak for a lot of people when I say I think I have barriers in some of my attractions relating to, uh, back to 1851. So <laughs> some of them just haven't been updated since then. Um, and Lois, where can we find you? 
Yeah, so obviously the VA is um their website is uh, VAM.ac.uk. So you can um pop on there and uh, get tickets to come and visit us either for one of our shows or for free general entry and come and say hi to our wonderful team. Um or you can follow me on Twitter, it's just Lois at Lois Honeywell. Um I'm the same on LinkedIn. I'm very lucky. I think I'm the only one in the world. There's there's a Louise Honeywell and I've got I've got my eye on her, but uh, <laughs> It's Lois Honeywell. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you both so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I look forward to more Tensor related uh, fun in the future. Thanks, guys. Bye.